Hello and welcome to the second series of Ocean Matters from the Bursa Rally Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. In this episode, we're exploring healthy ecosystems, travelling from vast rainforests all the way to the sandy shores of remote atolls. What are the processes that keep these important ecosystems running? And bizarrely, when it comes to ecology, marine ecosystems and land ecosystems are often studied separately, but we need to get much better at understanding the links between them. We cannot consider them isolated systems because they're not. So can a healthy island ecosystem improve the state of the ocean? Well, that's something that I discussed with Yadvenda Mali, Professor of Ecosystem Science at Oxford University and Director of Oxford's Leverhulme Centre for Nature Recovery. It's an area where the different sciences collide, but Yadvinda has had a varied career and he starts by explaining where it all began. When I was a, a teenager, I was really into astronomy and I still am in some, in some ways. And so I went to university determined to be an astronomer and studied physics at Cambridge and enjoyed it a lot, but also realised that astronomy involved a lot of sitting behind a computer looking at images and while I was there, I also did a bit of geology as a side topic and found particularly liked fieldwork. I really enjoyed being surrounded by the thing I was studying and getting grubby and dirty. This was also the time that the environmental climate change was just arising as an issue in the late 80s. And suddenly I thought, yeah, climate change, future of the planet. This sounded like the science that I wanted to do. So how did you jump from physics to climate sciences? I decided to do a PhD in meteorology. And that PhD was looking at how vegetation in dry areas how the degradation or loss of that vegetation changes the amount of moisture in the atmosphere and how that might be leading to desertification. So I spent a year living in Niger in West Africa, getting grubby and dirty, but, but also really enjoying being there, enjoying, enjoying the communities, the culture, and also do, doing, doing this science. And I lo- realised I really loved fieldwork. Uh, the skills there were still very much as a, as a physicist, uh, measuring fluxes to the atmosphere. But then for my postdoc, I was asked to take similar skills and to tackle a different question, which is whether the Amazon rainforest was absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So I spent a lot of time living in Manaus in the centre of the Amazon, building a tower and measuring the breadth of the rainforest, how much carbon dioxide was coming in and out of the rainforest to measure, measure this carbon sink. And that was interesting in lots of different ways in itself. But what I was totally bewitched by was the forest itself. I realised all around me, there was thousands of miles of biological mystery. There were loads of things that we didn't know, didn't understand about this forest. And that the particular questions they were asking, they were interesting enough, but the more interesting questions were all the ecological ones about what makes this ecosystem tick? How does it function? How do all these species come together to make a coherent ecosystem? So that became my focus. That's when I would say I became an ecologist, so really in my postdoc time. And now I'm in geography, <laughs> so there's also a social element to this as well, of understanding how people shape ecosystems. And so it's been a, a constant little sideways migration. Well, I've never met anyone who I thought took a similar career path to me, actually. I also started off in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge studying physics, and I also moved to the ocean and studying the breathing of the ocean, and then I discovered the ocean. So it feels like we started from the same physics place, but ended up in two very different ecosystems. But for those people who don't think about forests very much, what are your favourite scientific moments from working in the forest? What's that like? Part of the, the magic is just simply being in the forest. I just love that sense of unknown, of mystery. of, uh, and I think forests encourage that because you never quite know what's around the corner anyway as you're working in the forest. But particularly in a tropical forest, 
every tree you see is likely to be a different species. Every insect that's flapping in front of you is likely to be a species, in many cases, perhaps a species new to science. And so there's that endless sense of the vast mystery of the biological world. And every, when you look at a satellite image or Google Earth and you see an image, say, of the Amazon, you can think, oh, yeah, no, we mapped it. We can see it from space. We understand it. And when you stand inside that forest and you realise there's just layer upon layer of, of mystery, of, of unknown, and that sort of sense of humility that I create, as well as excitement, is what really excites me about, about forests. What are the processes that are inside rainforests? If you take a, a sort of scientific external view, what are the bits in the machine that keep a forest ticking? And there are a number of things. So firstly, the, the structure of the forest is driven by all of these different types of tree competing for light, competing for nutrients. So that shapes the matrix, in which, uh, which is the habitat in which all the species exist. And that is affected by soils, by water supply, by seasonality of the climate. But then a more subtle, more invisible part is the role that the animals play in shaping that forest ecosystem. So, for example, certain species may disperse the, the fruits of the, of the trees and then and end up shaping the dominant trees. Others may be the animals that determine uh, which seedlings survive to maturity. And so the, the, the small animals, whether it's ants uh, affecting the smaller seeds or whether it's rats and agoutis affecting those, end up shaping the, the giant trees of, of the forest. So, so it's a mixture of non-biological processes, such as the atmosphere and the climate, and all these biological interactions that are incredibly complex in, in some ways, and we're still discovering a lot about them. So just to add an extra layer to the complication here, this is obviously a podcast about the ocean, and you have just outed yourself as a forest ecologist. So tell me, what is the connection here? What's a forest person doing on an ocean podcast? Well, an emerging theme in my forest work initially is, is this emerging field, what's called zoogeochemistry. Some of the listeners might have heard of biogeochemistry, how the biosphere and, and the and geology interact to shape the flow of nutrients of nitrogen and phosphorus in an ecosystem. And what zoogeochemistry does is look at the role that animals play in shifting nutrients across systems. And we first dabbled with this in forests uh, about 10 years ago, uh, trying to quantify these flows. And then a, a little side interest we developed over time was about the role of megafauna, the giant animals, and how they move nutrients initially across the landscape. And then sitting with one of my colleagues, uh, Chris Stoughty, over five years ago, we thought, well, what about the oceans and the whales and the literature around how whales move nutrients around? So we ended up thinking about that, the entire system of the Earth and ended up writing a paper called... Uh, global nutrient transport in a world of giants. And it argued that in a world without animals, the natural flow of nutrients is from weathering on continents and eventually settling out in the deep ocean. And it's the fact that there are beasts moving around that reverse this flow with whales bringing nutrients up to the surface waters, birds migrating nutrients from surface waters of the coast or to islands, and then animals moving from floodplains and coast in, inland. And that made me really aware of the huge role that animals play, but also how much of that pump is disrupted by modern human activity. And that got me interested in thinking about uh, the, the, these processes across ecosystems, including in, in marine ecosystems. And then more immediately, I started reading some of this fascinating work emerging from colleagues in, in Lancaster and others around how seabirds on islands play a major role in not only recovering the island, but also seem to be, benefit the coral reef and cause the reef to grow faster, to bounce back from bleaching events further. And uh, 
I invited uh, his colleague, uh, Nick Graham, his colleague from, from Lancaster over for a seminar and we started talking and that led to this idea of let's try and push this further and let's try and quantify these cycles. Let's, 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 let's measure the flow of nutrients from birds to islands to reef. And then he asked me on board as the, as the forest person to go from these huge continental forests to these, these teeny weeny forests that exist on coral atolls and look at describing the nutrient flow of the cycle. And also do, another aspect of our work is around remote sensing. We fly drones and we map nutrients from drones. Well, let's take a step back here then. How can an animal help nutrients move around? And what do we mean by nutrients here? Generally, the oceans are quite patchy in their nutrient supply. There may be a, a cluster of fish over here. There might be a little upwelling spot over there. And what seabirds do very well is go and locate those, those resource hotspots and feed there, and then come back to their to their roosting sites. And so they comb a vast area of tens of kilometers for nutrients, and then bring and concentrate them on an island or on a, on a cliff top or, or a shore. And so that's one part of this this pump. And then if if it's a, a similar migratory fish play a similar role as well. So the salmon that move from the ocean and then come up and die in a river would also play a similar role. And then the plants that are growing near those zones tend to be rich in nitrogen, in nutrients, and then they get grazed on by deer or by, or by bears feeding on the salmon. And then as those animals defecate, they move those, um, those nutrients further uh, around, mix things around in the system, and then other animals eat the plants near where that bear defecated and then move the uh, nutrients further. So ultimately, you have this mixing uh, along this gradient from high nutrients all the way down to, to the nutrient-poor in interiors of continents. It's quite a simplistic way of thinking about it. So you've got stationary things and moving things, and you need both of them to keep the ecosystem working. And I think perhaps we've been a bit blind to these processes, partially because most animal populations are much more depleted than they were even a few hundred years ago, let alone thousands of years ago. And so we tend to, well, our modern thinking about nutrients is that they're shaped by landscapes, by floodplains and geology and these local factors. But uh, we argue in our work, that actually in a world full of animals at the natural abundances, the, the animals were just mixing these things around all the time. So they were much more controlled by biology than by geology. I think uh, perhaps the problems are most acute when a system, when, when a system's mature and in equilibrium, it probably has enough nutrients around it. It recycles nutrients. So when a forest drops, its leaves and litter are taken up by the fungi and the roots and they come back into the system. But when an ecosystem is disturbed or disrupted, whether naturally by a hurricane or a landslide or whether by people clearing the system, when it's trying to bounce back, it needs to get a new supply of nutrients, a new bank of nutrients. And that, that's where I think the, the problems are most acute. So in a marine context, recovery from bleaching may be an example of that as well. When the, the coral needs to rebuild itself, that's where the extra nutrients in, in the waters seem to make the most significant difference in the rate at which that coral builds up again after a disturbance. So basically, you've got to solve the chicken and egg problem, which is that if you've got lots of healthy organisms, you have lots of recycling and lots of material. But if you take away those organisms, then you don't have material to recycle. So you can't recycle it, so you can't have more organisms. So it's kind of breaking a negative cycle and, and turning it back into a positive one. If you've got a bank of a nutrient in the ecosystem, once you've disturbed it, you've lost a lot of that bank. And then when you need, and when you need to refill that bank, that's where the rate of supply of nutrients uh, can, can help a lot. And a lot of this is 
we do use this word in science, budgeting, which involves counting things. Um, you're talking about an ecological system with effectively lots of different nutrients, lots of things that are going round and round. And you've got all these different animals and all these different plants. So how, how would you count all of that? You've identified a, quite a challenge there. I think with the vegetation and the soils, uh, it's less challenging, partially because they don't move around. You know all what, what, what's there. And there, if you know the productivity of a system by measuring, say, the rate of tree growth or litter fall, and you measure the nutrient content of the leaves or the wood and the roots, then you can calculate how much nitrogen or whatever nutrient you're interested in are being used by the plant, how it's cycling through. And the same can be done to some extent with the soil. The challenge when it comes to animals is that they move laterally. Sometimes they were quite large distances. So say with the seabird, you need to have some understanding of its ecology. How far does it range? How long does it spend on pooping near its roost versus foraging out at sea? So there's a bit of behavioral ecology that comes in there to understand that, which you then couple with the direct measurements. You can measure the nitrogen content or the isotopes in, in, in the guano and link that in as well. So it's a mixture of simple biophysical measurements with, a, with behavioral ecology, which makes it also quite, quite an interesting mix of disciplines to, to trample together. And a very big challenge with counting all those things. You know, one of the things I think always surprises people when I start talking about ocean stuff is the amount of poop there is around. Like it is the most important thing. It's basically what you need to count to deal with everything else. There are those people who want nice, clean science and it just doesn't work like that. And so Looking down on a whole forest, I mean, you know, it's kind of easy to walk up to one tree and look at its leaves, you know, and take one sample. But how do you scale that up to an entire rainforest? Well, one way we do it is uh, by get a stepping above the forest and using a number of approaches. So the initial approach I used when I lived in Brazil was to have these instruments that measure the turbulent mixing of the air and the concentration of carbon dioxide. And then by combining just the knowing several times a second, the rate at which air is moving up and down, and the concentration of carbon dioxide in that air, you can work out the flow in and out of carbon. There's no easy solution for nutrients per se. So what we do there is have these forest plots where at the scale of 100 meters by 100 meters, we measure the nutrients of all the trees, the concentration, and we measure the growth rate and death rate of the trees. And from that scale up, um, I build a budget. And then the final thing we use then is see if we can be clever with the, with the satellite or the drone-based remote sensing. So we fly drones over these sites. And somewhat to our surprise, we find that if you have these multispectral sensors that have about 10 different wave bands, or even more in some cases, we seem to be able to detect the nutrient status of the leaves. So nitrogen, for example, absorbs in very specific wave bands in the near infrared. And if you can detect that, you can measure the nitrogen content of the leaves and then start mapping it at a larger scale. And then in principle, then, then that can scale up a satellite as well. So there's little steps in the process, but we think we're getting there in being able to map nutrients on a scale of something like the Amazon forest as a whole. Essentially, what these sensors do is give us magic eyes that can see beyond the visible into the infrared. And we start seeing much more information there than the limited amount that we, that we see with our own eyes. So we've dealt with forests, which we think of as being on land, on continents. But, you know, this, this is an ocean podcast. We're interested in tropical islands. So how does all of this apply to a small tropical island? Well, one of the challenges in, in tropical islands is that when you see these uh, coral atolls, maybe in a, in a tourist brochure, they often look idyllic. They're the ultimate fantasy island with a beach and coconut palms, hardly anybody there. But ecologically, many of them are disaster zones. And a, a big feature 
was in the spread of the 19th century, the spread of the, the coconut, the copra industry, to grow coconuts to produce oil, mainly for oil trade. And so there are islands such as the Chagos Islands that were known as the oil islands at that time. So this converted these natural ecosystems into dark monocultures of just one plant. And also coconut it doesn't provide many nesting spaces for birds compared to now trees with branches. And so that also directly reduced the bird population. And then the other effect was with the spread of sailing in the 17th, 18th century, the ship rats spread from the continents to these remote islands. Often many of these islands had unique species of ground nesting birds that could nest on the ground because there were no native mammals to try to eat their eggs. And so there was a widespread wipeout of uh, uh, native bird species. Uh, and so many of these idyllic looking islands are actually ecological disasters. And so what we're looking at in this project is to what extent can they be rehabilitated? The two stages to that are firstly, can rats be removed from the island so the birds can come back without their eggs being eaten? And then a second stage that we're beginning to explore is to what extent can we restore these overgrown, abandoned coconut plantations? Not many of them aren't used anymore. And can we restore them into semi-natural ecosystems that birds can thrive on? And that's interesting in itself for the islands themselves, but where the connection to the marine system comes, comes about is, if we do that, do we also end up benefiting the reef? And the initial science suggests that this could be quite important in giving the reefs more of a chance in the context of climate change. And also if the reef is thriving, the island itself is better protected against sea level rise as well. So there's a really interesting idea I'd like to pick up on there, which is this idea that coconut palms, just because of their shape, which is quite distinctive, because they don't provide roosts for birds, birds just don't sit on them and poo there. So there's no poo at the bottom of the coconut tree. I mean, it almost sounds like a silly idea. But once you think about it, you can imagine that becoming really important. Is it? Is it really as simple as all that? A few smaller species do manage to do that, but the majority of the the bigger species, the boobies and others, really struggle to uh, to nest on those, in those sort of structures, so they, they need the bigger trees. You're clearly a person who stretches out your tendrils into lots of areas of research, and so you're stretching out here into the area of tropical islands. What are the things you're hoping to find, and where are you looking first when you're looking at connecting the forests on land with the ocean? Well, the first thing on a purely personal level is this is a great chance for me to learn more about marine ecology and marine ecosystems. And and that's part of the fun of it. There's a whole range of ecology that I vaguely know, but I've never really immersed ourselves. And generally in the field of ecology, there's a very big division that the terrestrial ecologists and the marine ecologists are very rarely in the same meetings, in the same conversations. So so that's been fascinating in itself. And then in terms of uh, what we're looking for, perhaps this is the physicist to be coming out again, but I think actually the evidence that we've seen so far is all about correlations. Perhaps the reef seems to grow faster. Can we actually put numbers on that? Can we actually start describing the arrows and the size of the arrows and the cycles that are there? So I guess that's what I'm looking for to, to try and do there. And how about the types of tree, you know, the nutrients that different types of tree use? Because I know, for example, that in an old growth forest and a rainforest, you would get specific types of tree and they're different and you're not going to find those on the coral atoll presumably so on, the, on these atolls they're quite harsh environments from very sandy soil uh, which also doesn't hold water very well so in terms of uh, the number of species at, at the most it's about 10 of the tree species where if i'm working in northern peru my little 100 meter by 100 meter plot typically has between 200 and 300 species of tree alone there. So I find myself, I can become a botanical expert in about two days working in these plots in the islands and knowing all the species. One of the 
fundamental features of a lot of ecology, but particularly in plant ecology, is trees that are very conservative. If you have an environment, some trees just grow slowly, hold on to the nutrients that they've gained, put lots of chemicals in their leaves so they don't get eaten very much. And the others that are real live fast, die young trees that grow fast, acquire nutrients, get munched to pieces by insects because they don't really care because they're just trying to grow fast, reproduce fast, uh, and then die. And we see those contrasts on these nutrient-rich islands. We're seeing these fast-growing species really doing well and the conservative species doing doing better on, on, on the nutrient-poor islands. And one of the interesting features of this uh, fast-growing tree, there's one species called Pisonia, which famously has these very sticky seeds. And birds love nesting on it and eating the seeds. But the young or birds often get tangled up in the seeds and end up dying. But, but we almost wonder whether this is almost a, a deliberate strategy by the tree uh, as hungry for nutrients and actually capturing and killing some of these birds effectively is a way of increasing its nutrient supply and its own uh, nutrient demand. So this could be bird killing trees. Uh, that is slightly out of day of the Triffids, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone thought the tropical trees are all nice and friendly, but no, they are killing birds in order to eat them. Uh, so I'm interested in, you know, this ecology, marine ecologists and land ecologists meeting. What's it like to work between those two fields? It was a lot of fun. Uh, I've spent some time on boats now with marine ecologists. And, and one of the things that we found is just because of timing uh, and opportunity, sometimes the marine ecologists would join us on the land because they couldn't work in, in the, because of storm conditions or whatever. They'd spend a day measuring trees with me, and I'd spend a day at least sort of at least snorkeling the reef if not doing anything useful there. One of the, in terms of the practicalities of work, one of the things that, that my diving colleagues noticed is that I could work all day. I didn't have to run out of oxygen, <laughs> that, uh, that, and so it was possible to collect six, seven hours of data in a day. Whereas as a as a diving marine ecologist, it was, you were limited to one or two hours a day. So the sheer amount of what you could do on land was quite different from the marine system. There's lots of differences overall. The, uh, the land system is driven very much by the plants providing the nutrients that then shape the ecosystem, whereas the marine systems, you have a whole different range of so much biomass and the animals and the predators and those components. So really, really fascinating differences when you start thinking through them. Well, it's really interesting, I think, because one of the reasons people don't appreciate life in the ocean is that it's very small and it's very short-lived and it just kind of churns over. And on land, you've got things like trees that last for hundreds of years and they've got vast amounts of biomass and they don't move. And you get almost as much photosynthesis from the ocean. It's just that it's tiny and turning over very quickly, so it doesn't last very long. So we sort of don't see it. Yes, exactly. I think, I think that's a big part of it. And the oceans, we can go in and go in a snorkel and be bewitched by the aquarium-like atmosphere, but it's really hard to understand what's going on. I think uh, it's all mysterious and quite alien to, to most people's experience, unless you start reading and understanding the ecology of what's going on there. It's just, it's just a fantastical aquarium rather than something that you can really see, oh, yeah, that makes sense, this is doing that, until you really go to learn about it. Well, that's the bias of being land mammals, isn't it? You know, it's that we understand what we see every day and we think the ocean is alien just because it's not what we see every day. But actually, you know, this is it's fascinating. So why is it important that people like you are not afraid to cross these boundaries? And what are the benefits of doing it? I think a lot of the most exciting stuff happens at the, at the, at the boundaries between disciplines so all, because of this interaction between different ways of thinking, different viewpoints of something that you're not immersed in uh, overall. And also, I, I, and I, as a personal bias, I love being in, in, in a discipline where I'm not an expert, where I haven't spent years studying and pouring over it. So every conversation is a learning experience. Where you, yes, I can contribute something from a different perspective, but 90% of the time I was just absorbing 
and learning. So looking at the ocean then as an ocean newbie, and I, I think you probably wouldn't mind me describing you as that, what are the things that really grab you about the things that we don't know or perhaps could know about the ocean? Well, well it tells how, how it works. It's this, this constant sideways movement of things. In the oceans, everything is just moving sideways in the currents all the time. And so many organisms are adapted to capture this constant sideways flow. So that's a completely different realm from the way we think of the atmosphere and the land biosphere. And then this point about how structure is not shaped by the primary producer so much, the degree of symbiosis, the degree to which different life forms merge to do something quite clever and innovative is there. And, and I guess the final point is just simply the, the deeper variety of life, that life originated in the oceans and a subset of those creatures made it out onto land and uh, adapted to land environments. But once you get into the ocean, there's much more complete types of creatures that you just don't experience in terrestrial ecosystems. Yeah, it's good for humility, I think, because you realise how much we absolutely assume that things are the way we see them on land. You know, that things have ribs and forelimbs and two eyes, those sort of basic rules of animals on land. And then you look in the ocean and then you can have these worms with, I don't know, one head and five anuses that reproduce in completely bonkers ways. And it's just another way of living. And it's, it's fine, but it's fascinating. And so when it comes to, you know, the new projects that you got started, looking at tropical islands and the connection between the trees on the land and the ocean, perhaps even broader than that. What were the really big questions for you? I mean, what are the things that you think are big and important that, that we really need to deal with? One of the exciting things is this emerging field of zoogeochemistry to go from describing ecosystems as these communities of organisms to look at the, the big local but also planetary scale cycles that, that, that are shaped by ocean ecosystems. And I think we're just scratching at the surface of understanding them. So just beginning to understand that role of uh, animals shaping whole ecosystems is something uh, that I'm doing on land as well with our ongoing work on land. But I, uh, I think the ocean almost provides a mirror, a very different system where we can think through those questions. I think it's a really nice idea that studying each one of them will help study the other. You know, we've got one planet Earth, but actually there are so many things. That, you know, with even, even within that one data point, there's actually loads of different systems, but the same basic rules apply. It's kind of like learning different languages. You're all still people communicating, but you're speaking a different language. And I, I think that's really nice. Um, and so how optimistic are you about us understanding these big systems before we destroy them? You know, you and I are field scientists. We go out into the world, we're collecting data, we're trying to understand what we see. But at the same time as we're trying to understand the basic rules, we can see the systems changing. That's a good question. And I think my approach overall to this is that, yes, we can improve knowledge and we must keep on improving knowledge. But often there's lots we can get on with, even while our knowledge improves. And I think with a lot of ecological restoration and nature recovery more broadly, which is something I'm really interested in. I think more research is certainly needed, but it isn't the limiting step. And sometimes we'll make mistakes because the research wasn't good enough. But I think 90% of the time we'll, we'll get things right and then the research will further bolster that. Well, we've got a lot to work on, but it's going to be exciting work to do. Thank you very much, Yadvinder Mali, Professor of Ecosystem Science at Oxford University. And it really struck me talking about all this that we've spent so many years classifying everything. That was what Victorian science did. It put everything in boxes. And we've got to this point where we've discovered that the world really is much more interesting than that. And although we probably still do need to give things separate names, now we're at the stage where instead of the job being to separate and 
name everything. What we need to do is to recognize the connections between it all because it's all connected and we can't ignore that any longer. And we can only do that through collaboration, putting ourselves as scientists in unfamiliar places. Now, next time we'll be discussing the importance of connective species like salmon, their cultural significance for indigenous communities, and we'll be improving our knowledge of the complex interrelationships between fish, people, and the places they both live in. Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts.